For July 1st, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 574. Set up, set up, set up, punchline, jump. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are sequestered together inside an Antarctic cabin, uh, being menaced by an alien from another world. I'm Matt Rather, uh, and with me, or are they with me, are uh, my good friends Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. I'm not one of those things, Matt. What are you talking about? <laughs> and Jordan Stokes. Hello, Jordan. Are you an alien? Because if you're an alien, you have to tell me, or this is entrapment. Yeah. <laughs> aliens Aliens <laughs> love war rules. Uh, uh, that's, that's Lilo and Stitch, right? Or is that, uh, I don't know. Aliens love rules comes from Lilo and Stitch. And speaking of a great fan of Lilo and Stitch, Pete Fenzel uh, has been, um, has been uh, what, uh, subsumed into a larger entity. Uh, that we call matrimony, and uh, is out of the country right now. <laughs> I thought you were, were going to say the European Union. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Pete Frenzel has Brentard <laughs> and is going around. Thank you. Thank you for the pity chortle, Jordan. Um, and he's, uh, he's uh, traveling this week, but we uh, will have him back soon. And uh, we're doing something. This is, this is uh, 2019 for us is definitely the, the summer of the rewatch or the, you know, certainly the summer of the, of the, like, the VOD rental uh, for me. Because uh, when Jordan agreed to, to join us, um, he said, boys, you know... You better watch out, because Stokes, you know, Stokes is only about that thing, that thing, the thing, and we are going to talk about the 1982 John Carpenter film, The Thing. So, uh, spoilers for The Thing, but I just watched it, and, and I had read the Wikipedia synopsis before, and the, 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 uh, the, the experience of the film was undimmed by knowing what happened. So there are, there are a number of surprising things you might want to stay unspoiled, but we are going to t- tell the plot, more or less, of The Thing now. So, uh, if that kind of thing bothers you, uh, fire up your old, uh, fire up your old iTunes movies, fire up your old uh, Amazon Prime Video, fire up your old Google Play, whatever you got, uh, fire it up and come back to this episode when you've seen the movie. All right, that out of the way. Jordan, what even is a thing? Yeah, so we figured that we might want to do a bit of a plot synopsis for this one because it's not something that you would know about just from following following like the pop culture press, although probably a lot of you have seen it. Anyway, the thing is set in the Antarctic in like a research station where there's a bunch of American scientists and some support staff that are in there sort of over the winter. And it's gotten to the point in the winter where the weather is so severe that they're out of radio contact with, uh, with their sort of... With home base at, uh, I don't know, McMurdo Sound or something like that. That sounds vaguely appropriate. And this weird thing happens where uh, they see a helicopter chasing a dog across the ice. 
and the helicopter lands, two Norwegian men come out of it, and they are trying to kill the dog. And one of them uh, pulls out a hand grenade and promptly drops it and blows himself in the helicopter up. Uh, And then the other one, because he's shouting in Norwegian, which nobody speaks, and firing kind of uh, very, very wildly, he ends up shooting one of the Americans kind of by accident as he's trying to hit this dog. Uh, he then gets killed by one of the other Americans who sort of sensibly enough sees somebody shouting and firing wildly into a crowd and, and takes action. So that's the that's the setup. And then it becomes clear pretty quickly that this dog is not a dog. It is a alien, a space alien, which has been frozen under the ice since the dawn of time. It crash-landed during the opening credits, and uh, and since then it has been frozen under the ice. And the There's Norwegian... a huge lacuna. There is a huge gap in time in this particular in this particular film. Between the opening credits and the first shot of the movie, nearly all of eternity elapses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, and you don't find that out for a while, right? But uh, so the Norwegians have dug it up for reasons that we don't really get to know about, and it then has destroyed them for in ways that we don't get to understand until later on. Uh, like there's a, a sort of a recon mission that goes out to the Norwegian encampment. They know where it is because all the scientists are friends with each other, and they find it just burnt out. And there are these weirdly mangled corpses that are kind of fused together. The thing has this trait or characteristic. It can, if it makes contact with you, uh, it seems to be kind of a droplet contagion. So if you if you have blood-to-blood contact or spit-to-spit contact, then its cells enter your body and will then take over your body. And you will sort of melt into first a monstrous hybrid and then back into yourself and you'll be able to act exactly like yourself and you will uh, be completely undetectable by any science that that man knows for the most part and then you will be able to go up and infect somebody else and the at one point there is like a computer simulation that is run and it says something like if this thing manages to get out to civilization then everything on the earth will be the thing within something like uh, 12,000 hours or something like that, some relatively small amount of time. Uh, so that's that's the nature of the threat. The people eventually figure out what's going on, and then the game is find the thing and burn it before it manages to kill enough of the scientists that it can take over the entire station. If it manages to do that, then it will still be there when their like support team comes again in the spring, and then it will take over the world. And of course, the thing is that uh, <laughs> the thing is that you don't know who the thing is, and everybody's sort of staring around and saying, "Like, are you the alien? Are you the alien? Wait, am I the alien? Maybe." And uh, and then everything blows up. So like that that's basically the plot as you need to know it. Kurt Russell's here, Keith David is here, uh Wilford Brimley is here, several other actors are also here. It, that's about also it, right? Specifically how the movie ends, right? With two survivors kind of staring each other down. Um one of whom at least there's like a strong hint earlier on that he might be the thing because like a, there's a piece of shredded clothes that has his name on it and that's like a clue because uh, that that's you know Hulk style you know when when you become the thing um you you burst out of your clothes and your undies are left uh, scraps of your clothes are left lying around so um and there's also a blood test that blo- both of them pass so you mentioned Stokes like the scientific test and what is kind of improvised on the spot by um the ostensible protagonist this McCready 
um, who again is, is earlier is strongly hinted as possibly a suspect as being the thing. Um, both of these characters who survived the end have passed the test, but we're still left with the possibility, right? That one of them still might be it. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, yeah and, there's, and there's sort of strong hints that both of them might be it because you have the McCready jumpsuit, uh, and then also uh, the 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 Keith David character, Childs, is it right? Like he sort of unexplainedly ran off out of the camp. Uh, and then was missing for like the last 10 minutes of the movie and then just comes like wandering back, uh, which isn't like a super unsuspicious kind of thing to have done. Right. Yes. Ugh. I mean, so his name is McCready, but it's spelled McRe- Mac Reddy. And I think they call him Mac. And I, I, you know, I thought like Mac, it was kind of like he was Mac prepared, you know, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> because that was his role in this is to be Mac prepared. Uh, you know, all of all of the time. Um, though I think he he uh, was it him playing chess with a uh, uh, with an apple IIe near the beginning of the movie and and uh, throwing whiskey on it when it when uh, it beats him or something. That's uh, you know. So he's not exactly Mac prepared. He's maybe more IBM PC prepared. Um, <laughs> That is a telling little scene at the min- at the beginning there. So it's a science station, right? But he's not a scientist because he drinks whiskey and breaks stuff. <laughs> yeah, he breaks technology when it doesn't, uh, you know, when it doesn't suit him. And he he uh, he fixes his car with a you know swift kick in the carburetor. McReady, but um, yeah, it, <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, the uh, I, I, th- I mean, I, it is an interesting thing, the little microcosm of society that you get at this, because you get like you get sort of military guy, you know, in the person of the the captain of the station, um, who's a sort of straight laced, uh, straight laced kind of fella. And um, and then the scientists, you know, some of whom are kind of countercultural, some of whom are a little nerdy. Um, some of whom are countercultural and nerdy, and then you have Kurt Russell, who is who is like, uh, you know, the 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 kind of everyman, the the like the aspirational guy, right? Like we 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 uh, women want him, men want to be him. Um, you know, and he he uses not you know uh, he uses like uh, straight up common sense. You know, like like he's the one who gets a reckon. You know, at some point that the thing is is uh, uh, gonna pr- that every part of the thing after he's seen uh, Spiderhead, Spiderhead does whatever a Spiderhead does. He he uh, gets a reckon that like every part of the thing can sort of break off. It's a fractal thing, and and every part of the thing is you know has the 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 potentialities and the the powers of the whole, um, and that uh, it, you know. And this is this is not through any any fancy book learning. Anyway, I thought it was it's an interesting kind of stagecoach, you know, um, sort of thing where there is a little society, uh, a little society that's that's created, uh, albeit a society society entirely without women, and it's a society that's kind of um, bleak and built on mistrust, uh, much like society. <laughs> Except for the no, no, the no women part, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely it feels. I guess it, this is a, an '80s movie, right? Like yeah. early '80s, but it feels like a very 1970s kind of idea of what society is, which is like there are a whole bunch of people stuck together and they barely like each other already, and then something's going to go wrong. Yep. 
Yeah, it's a it's a sort of the the uh, it's the the sort of war of all against all, except it's not a state of nature; it's a state of civilization, or it's a little. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a great little metaphor, right? Like because we are it. You know, in a way, in a way, we're all you know stuck on a Arctic, uh, Antarctic um, science station. You know, unable to communicate with anyone from the outside or or get out. Right? Like, you know, there, there's no. I mean, unless you know, I'm I am much surprised in the next in the you know coming days and weeks. Right? There's there's no God coming down from heaven. You know, tomorrow who's going to tell us. Uh, you know, who was right about stuff all along and whether global warming is a hoax. You know, it's not, it's just not, we're, we're on our own uh, to figure a lot of this stuff out. So it is, you know, it is a, um, it is an interesting sort of social comment, I guess. But, but is it a horror movie? Like, uh, Jordan, you, you suggested that we, we endure this, um, this bleak, <laughs> Uh, this this frozen you know uh, this this frostbitten um, dystopia. So tell tell us like yeah, as our horror movie expert, is this a is this a horror movie? Yeah, well, because I I was I was asked to be on the podcast because Pete wasn't going to be here. And uh, uh, hold on, sort of hold cast- on, hold on, Jordan, you were asked to be on the podcast because you are awesome. Uh, it also <laughs> happens that Pete was not going to be here. Yeah. I have a general invite because I'm awesome, but I have a a proximate invite because Pete wasn't going to be here. And people were sort of casting about for something, and uh, it had been in the news a bit that the thing was, it's having an anniversary uh, this this week or something like that. Uh, So I had been thinking about it, and I said, like, oh, man, the thing. And uh, Mark said that he hadn't seen it, and I said, oh, Mark, it'll melt your face off, which, watching it again, I was like, oh, that was was very apt. (laughs) But um, then I said, but we shouldn't do that, Matt because you hate horror movies. I do. And I don't like scary things. They scare me. Yeah. And I feel like there's there's sort of a, a weird conjunction here of science fiction and horror. On the one hand, it's based on a pretty science fiction-y novella called Who Goes There, where they, they lean into a lot more the notion there of how can we possibly test to see who the thing is. They spend a lot of time sort of thinking about potential tests that they can do, and they run a whole test that like that seems like it's going to work, and then they realize that the test is flawed. So it's, it's much more about that kind of thought experiment, uh, and that seems like a science fiction kind of idea. And I guess it's worth saying at, at this point, uh, you, you mentioned it before, but this is kind of a neat thing. The idea is that one droplet of the thing is a new thing, which means that if you take blood from somebody and it's human blood, you can like put a, a hot wire or an electric shock into it and it'll just sizzle. Whereas if it's alien blood, it will like crawl away from the wire. Uh, and this is how they eventually manage to figure out who the thing is. Um, on the other hand, it's got this these incredibly vivid, powerful horror movie aesthetics from the like the long kind of unblinking uh, takes 
either across the frozen wasteland of Antarctica or, uh, or as it happens, Canada, I think, uh, or uh, down these sort of like dark, cramped corridors of this research base and this incredible glowering synthesizer score, uh, courtesy of Ennio Morricone, and then the like the creature effects, these like half-melted dog things, half-melted man things. The thing that this one does that messes me up even today watching it is that like a lot of it is apparently done with bladders. So rather than having like a puppet that is rigid rods, which are then being manipulated, and like and that's that's sort of the way that Muppets are done and the way that marionettes are done. This one has a lot of things that look like rubber suits. And you can tell that it's a rubber suit. Like that's not a real dog head. That's a rubber dog uh like mask. But then because they're moving it by inflating it with gas from the inside, it bends in this incredibly kind of organic looking way. And it's just the perfect representation of something that is trying to be alive but isn't quite and it gives me the ghibli ghibli ghiblis so on <laughs> instead of this aesthetic way it's absolutely a horror movie and yet it does have these science fiction ideas maybe running around in it uh, and also maybe a, a level of symbolism or something like that that is going on in terms of what the thing might represent in terms of the broader culture if we're saying oh it's a little model society and then it's infected by something what is that infected thing how can we cast it out how can we test blood to find it and and burn it out. Uh, that's not really a horror movie kind of vibe, right? Horror movies are more just about making your skin crawl. That feels more science fiction-y again. So in answer to your question, I do not know. Yeah, I mean, it's a, there is kind of an interesting kind of generic question. And I... Um, as we were uh, negotiating the topic of this podcast, the uh, uh, our our friend and sometimes uh, co-host Amanda was uh, you know uh, chatting with us and said, "Oh, Matt, you won't you won't mind it. I watched it, and it's not like you know, it's not like a ton of jump scares. There there are a couple. Uh, there are there are two epic epic jump scares. To yeah. be really clear, um, the yeah the the uh, the stomach mouth." Is uh, oh my goodness, the stomach mouth and it just opens up and goes chomp. Yeah, exactly. And it's at a moment when, like, usually horror movies have this structure where you have, like, the the danger scenes, and then you have the safe scenes. And then you yeah. have the danger scene and the safe scene. And it's right in the middle of probably the safest scene we've had so far that one of the corpses just turns out not to be a corpse. And, uh, yikes. <laughs> yeah, that's – well, I mean, yeah, and it's sort of almost almost dead. I mean, you got to be charred remains to be, you know, to be safe from the thing. Um, and it's not uh, – you know – so so, so just a corpse, if, if the corpse is, is the thing. I mean, and it seems like, I, I wonder if anyone has really done the, you know, done the full diagramming of who gets thinged when, um, you know, because uh, there, there are a couple ones that like, at what point does the guy they lock in the shed become a thing? He, he'd been a thing all along, but he was the thing when he was looking at the projection, uh, or was he the thing when he was looking at the the statistical projection of like how how long will it take to thing the entire universe? Was that like was uh, was he thing interested in that because he was like how long will it take me to 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 assimilate everyone and multiply and and um, you know uh, uh, or 
was he thinged at some point subsequent to that, right? There are a lot of, and I, I don't think we're going to solve them uh, on, on this episode without a, a sort of clear point of reference. I feel like this would be a perfect like video essay topic um, if someone wants to like uh, go viral on YouTube. But, um, you know, it, it definitely opens it up to that, to that kind of thing. I, Wikipedia told me that this movie was really panned um, when, it, when it came out uh, for, for being gross uh, and uh, sort of cheap and cheap thrills and it's not i mean it it's i guess i i come to it with the received idea that it's not cheap cheap thrills but i i guess i would hope that if i saw this film for the first time i I would cotton on to to the fact that it has an idea in its head right or or is it am i just spoiled because i've been you know because i have the internet and the internet has told me so i don't know Did, did was that the impression that that you guys got when you watched it it's both, right? It can be cheap thrills and have ideas. <laughs> I guess I guess to find cheap thrills, right? I mean, like, uh, so we, we talked about the jump scares, right? I mean, like, and uh, maybe let's at least tackle this before we talk about the ideas, um, right? Like, there's the the why it's a horror movie and what the horror movie is doing for us. And Jordan, I'm, I'm trying to tap into an explanation you've given to us many times. Um, it's that it's like it's allowing a safe space to enact out. Um, these deep anxieties and fears, right? In a perverse way, it makes us feel safer. Where, like, you know, you can see the the chest chomp thing happen, and somehow that provides us reassurance that that's not actually going to happen in real life. And well, we can go worrying about uh, have anxiety about other things. Is that fair to say? Like, sort of that very visceral horror aspect, like psychologically, that's what's doing to us and the catharsis that it's delivering. Yeah, I would say definitely that, although uh, depending upon how far down a Freudian rabbit hole you want to go, the anxieties might not be about um, monsters with the giant teeth uh, biting our heads off and might be about kind of social and psychosexual anxieties. Vaginas. You can just say it, Jordan. They're about vaginas. The anxieties are about vaginas. It's that your arm is going to be chomped off by the big crevice that opens up and your, your you know, long, sticky up hard thing is just going to be cut off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> by the you know in in the the toothed maw of the the giant uh, wet opening that's right there. It, sorry, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I think I thought this one was about communism. But, yeah. <laughs> well, so I think that those are two of the the very strong contenders for it. Uh, like we, we said earlier, that it's an all male society, and then you have to ask, but is it really now? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some, I mean, I. I suppose there's only so many ways for mouths to open up. Bilateral symmetry is what it is, but some of the special effects look a little bit more yonic than pure chance would seem to account for. Um, and then communism is another very good one. I would also say, that, like, falling right where it does, uh, HIV is something that you might want to think about a little bit. All this messing around with blood and the notion of that, like, everyone's got to get tested, and if even one person who hasn't been tested is running around loose in the camp, then these men aren't going to be doing so hot anymore. Um, And then the other one is, I think, pregnancy, because uh, you end up in this 
film with a whole bunch of men becoming pregnant and then having to go through the pangs of childbirth and not dealing with it so super well. So those, I think, are like the the four main uh, underlying kind of subliminal anxieties that I, I kind of think about when I think about this one. Yeah. Just on the AIDS uh, piece there, I, I believe this movie came out before the uh, onset of the AIDS epidemic, or at least public awareness of it, right? Well, it this was movie's yeah, 1982. I mean, it was an... I'm just very quickly looking at this up on Wikipedia, right? Like, uh, like I don't know. And the band played on came out in 1987, right? So this, yeah. the, timing, uh, the ideal wise, yeah, it works really well. But um, uh, chronologically, I guess like you know we can retcon it and such, right? Authors yeah. I guess it's the kind of thing where, like, I know it's an 80s movie and I know what was going on in the 80s. The fact that it's not at the right end of the 80s for that to make sense. Uh, like, at, at this historical remove, looking back on it, I think about that a lot. But I think that, I mean, yeah, you're right. At the time, probably not. And certainly when the, like, the novella was probably written in the 60s or something like that, where a lot of the ideas are straight from there. So, um, you know, we are definitely reading retroactively for that. Yeah. So, but I, I mean, for example, uh, I mean, Gay Men's Health Crisis was founded in 1982, right? So, uh, you know, and like uh, Larry Kramer and um, and all of this stuff, like the the I think I think it was sort of latent in the in certain countercultures, right? The um, uh, even though it didn't it didn't become uh, a national cause or, or known about like I mean this is one of the the things that that happened with AIDS I don't know it's it's I agree it's probably the the timing doesn't work out but but you could say that like a creative community was you know the creative community was really decimated by AIDS in the eighties and and uh, like a lot of um, people the the creative people behind this film might have been been closer to it and and it might have existed as an anxiety right like like this this is the thing like it's no maybe they don't sit down to to like chart out <laughs> what the thing represents right like maybe it's not well i mean i i i guess the, the zombies in uh I guess zombies accepted, right? Like that, that, uh, people really <laughs> do think through before they, they get going. But like these things are sort of, if they're anxieties, there's, they're sort of latent in the culture, right? And like they're, they're not, um, you know, you can't necessarily see, uh, off the top, um, what, what you're writing about even until it, uh, until it, it, yawns open in front of you uh you know glistening with with uh wetness and and um threatening you with its its uh, many sharp teeth mm. another speaking thing to think of go ahead, go, go. please you oh yeah speaking of the 80s like can we talk about the communism angle here sure i mean the i mean i guess the idea is that like you get you get taken over by a sort of centrally centrally planned thing like a lot of the you know um the knock on communism was, you know, you sort of lose your individuality, you lose your freedom, you know, you lose, uh, the, like a, a lot of things get sort of put, uh, get sort of rolled into it. Like, uh, you, it becomes like totalitarianism and socialism and, you know, um, a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of, of stuff about that. And there certainly was anxiety, uh, certainly was a ton of anxiety about, 
that at the time. So yeah, and, you know. I guess we should also talk about like what the societal distrust and paranoia that was bred in certainly at least say like the Soviet Union and East Germany uh, in particular, right, where um, people couldn't speak freely with each other because they thought that, you know, the, some of the state was listening in and, you know, that, that um, one of the people in their midst might be um, a thing of the state, um, and then would like would would corrupt them. I think that's uh, my my history is like a little bit hazy. I haven't studied up on it super closely recently, but I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah, I mean there were there were red scares in the United States, you know. Well, also that too, yeah. The one thing about the communism thing that has always struck me as weird is that the test that they work out for the the blood is actually a test to root out uh, capitalists. Because the thing is about the thing that the blood droplets are incapable of altruism or being part of a, uh, a like a broader social order where they do their part in the social order and don't aspire to anything higher. Every little blood droplet is out there trying to find uh, Apple or Amazon in its in its garage test tube lab and is going to look out for number one. So even though if the if the blood droplets could willingly go to their death, then it would be impossible to detect the things and mankind would be absolutely hopeless. It's because each individual within the sort of the thing side is incapable of looking out for the good of the side and can only look out for the good of itself that they're actually able to protect it so uh, counterpoint yeah. right if you think the interpretation that the two survivors are actually things as well and that somehow they passed that blood test then they actually somehow did uh demonstrate that altruism yeah i mean it, this this does depend on the test actually working which uh you yeah. know if you, if you say that it doesn't then i guess the only question is why why does it seem to at all work <laughs> but but yeah, like that that to to that point about the paranoia. Even when you feel like you have cleared everybody, and it's like, well, I know that you're not part of the the secret police because I grew up with you, and yet, do you ever really quite know? And you can never quite let your guard down. Uh, and yeah, so I mean, it, it works on these interlocking levels. It's not drum tight with the logic, but definitely there's some of that going on. I mean, it's you know, I think paranoia. Enacted at a society-wide level, paranoia becomes an existential position. You know, it just becomes a, a feature of your way of being, uh, rather than like, uh, rather than like an aspect or a th- or a thing that <laughs> a thing a thing that you do. Actually, like I was th- I was thinking about this with with um, with respect to the uh, I was thinking about this with respect to the blood test because the the thing about communism is that it sort of depersonalizes you at least this is the you know this is the the paranoia about it at the time um, the uh, you become a cognitive machine you become an animal i think it's it's important that the the thing shows up as a dog not just as a dog but as a sled dog so like a, a working animal like a, a means sort of rather than an end and so it's it's uh you know and you be you become like a a, a, a rat in a maze a cognitive machine a you know just a, a sort of a part of part of a mass rather than uh individuated so the the um the capitalist blood has self-determination i'm I'm trying to like i'm trying to maybe i'm stretching too far to try to make the blood test work but the capitalist blood has self-determination can can decide not to flee 
but lacking any mind of its own. The communist thing blood um, has to flee because the thing is a thing. It's not a. Uh, uh, it's not a not thing, right? I mean. The, the, the thing, thing, thingness. Like d- d- I asked you, Jordan, and, and at the beginning of the podcast, and you still haven't answered. You answered with the inexplicably with the plot of the movie. But what, what even is a thing, right? And what is the difference between a thing and a not thing? Are there not things? Are sentient beings not things? Are animals not things? Like what, what, uh, what, what? This, this, that. What's the deal with things? I mean, I guess a thing is a an object, not a subject, right? Yep. It suggests that the that the thing doesn't have desires. It's just running purely on instinct or something like that. Yeah. Which I think that is that is one of the big uh, the big slams on communism from the from the capitalist point of view. Uh, I guess maybe when I say that the blood test doesn't actually work thematically, I shouldn't expect like the art of anti-communist paranoia to have a really well thought out critique of communism. Maybe it's more like, oh yeah, you can't trust them. They're they're poison. Every aspect of them, you can never trust. Even like uh, you can. Never Never know that you've rooted them out. They're always trying to take things over from within and uh, sneak into our trade unions and steal our precious bodily fluids and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, sure. Uh, it's uh, you know, but um, the the idea of thingness of sort of like of depersonalization of kind of losing your subjectivity, like this is a sort of a, a sort of primal primal horror. I don't know. I'm I'm on record as saying I don't I don't like horror films, but I am like I you know I am down in the abstract for a kind of a representational space in which the culture works through its its fears, you know. Um, I just, uh, I just don't like it when, uh, you know, you're walking down the hall and the guy with the ax, uh, jumps out at the end. Like, I, I just don't, you know, I just, I just don't enjoy that. I, I don't enjoy that. Um, <laughs> I would say that the big difference between the way that the thing handles jump scares is that for the most part in, uh, in most movies, the guy with the ax would jump out of the closet. Whereas here, the guy with the ax would jump out of another guy with the ax. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are we talking about this? Let's, let's go into some of the more grotesque aspects of this for a moment. Yeah. Like, like, I hate yeah. the I hate no. the gross stuff. Let's talk about the I, gross stuff. No, I want to talk about the spider head. I know, yeah. Can, can we please? Right? I mean, so there's like, so many different aspects of the creature design um in this movie uh and and well they do give the what did you say jordan the, the ghibli 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 that's a technical term right yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh you know and i think you primarily think about the melted faces or at least uh, at least i do um i still do oh shudder um but then like the spider head bit happens and and, and it's presaged as well too by the other uh, like the first times you see the thing right the um the 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 sticky uh bony parts for lack of a better word, right? Um, I mean, aesthetically, right? I think you're, you're getting a good contrast between the fleshy, gooey stuff and then the hard, brittle things. Um, is there anything else to read into beyond that? The idea that it's also organic. Uh, I mean, it's all organic, right? But there's like it's it's fleshy and gooey, but at the same time, also brittle. So you should at least have like a nice uh, a visual contrast between those two elements. 
Yeah, often often there will be like these pulsing cables of flesh or things like that. And then there will be either insect parts or teeth that are kind of the the, the business end of the thing, as it were. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of textural richness, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I'm not. So like, where, what are what, where are you going with that? I guess I don't know. Like, are we supposed to read anything more into that other than just like, hey, let's like make this incredibly grotesque? And, and throw all these different elements into the stew pot so that it's something that is uh, so viscerally horrifying, right? That like uh, that it's just kind of like the max of what we can do for a rated R movie. Well, the, or is it worth like the, the I, I remember a literature class where someone, uh, some professor or another, I don't remember the professor, which probably doesn't speak well of the class, but um, described uh, monstrous things as things that are have multiple forms or sort of biforms. And we were talking about Greek literature, I think, you know, and it was like the head of this animal, the body of this animal, or the head of a human, the body of, of a human and the, or a non-human, right? And this, this, these sorts of things were, were monsters. They were terrifying. They were scary. You know, there's something unnatural about them, uh, though they're, they're concocted of natural parts, right? And that, and I don't know, that's, that's the sense I get of of the of the things kind of like is it a is it an insect monster yes is it a tooth monster yes is it a uh you know uh weird uh stranger things you know demon dog monster with the the venus tra- flytrap face yes is it a you know and it's it's sort of it's a it's kind of a d all of the above of of uh horrible things um and some not horrible things, including the like the human organs that are pulled out of the uh, uh, of split face that they find at the Norwegian camp, a- and uh, they are you know gross on their own, right? And they're even more gross. Um, they're even more gross uh, when they're all together. And I think there's something yeah. even more horrible about it because you can't uh, sort of pin it down to a single form, right? Like you can't say that is what the thing is uh, because the thing is a the thing is a potentiality almost more than it is a thing. Uh, well, it's made explicit in the movie too, right? So it, it has assimilated uh, any living organism that it comes across. So it's an amalgamation of all those different things. Yeah. And so, I mean, again, this kind of like this idea of like losing your integrity, like losing the, you know, the sense that, that you are a person with, um, with, with boundaries, with like, uh, some control over what is you and what isn't you. Um, it, it sort of strikes at the, uh, strikes at the heart of that. Uh, Oh, here's, here's a, here's a question to to consider, right? How complex does the organism have to be in order for the thing to decide it's worthy to assimilate it, right? Does it go for rodents? Does it it get ants? It got a spider. Does it get microbes? It got a spider. It certainly did. Yeah. Oh God. Wow. Holy crap. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) And, and the, the notion that like you, there's something that you could touch that would then become part of you and then it would become what you are sort right. of suggests that there's not actually really a boundary between you and the outside. Another thing about it that is, I think. Oh, so the thing is Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, it's not. But, yeah. you know, there you go. Um, I mean, it, it could, I suppose, be a fear of Buddhism from a certain <laughs> point of view. But the the uh, the other thing that the movie kind of suggests a couple of times, which interestingly, the the novella abruptly and without any kind of justification cuts off this possibility. But in the movie, it seems as if you could be already infected and not know that you're infected. 
there's a, an interesting point where the guy, the guy who becomes the uh, the belly chomper, yeah. uh, he is like helping to barricade the camp, and he suddenly like feels a pain in his stomach. And looks a little worried about it and then doesn't do anything. And then later on, he uh, he sort of keels over apparently dead. And it's at this point that they're like trying to revive him, that his stomach opens up and uh, and bites the doctor's hands off. So, like, yeah, he could have fallen over dead on purpose to make that happen. But there's no one around when he suddenly like has this pang and goes like, ow, and then goes right back to, uh, to barricading the door or whatever he's doing, which kind of suggests that like he was in the process of being converted at that moment and didn't realize it yet, which is another layer layer of a uh, really intense anxiety for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, so, uh, so you, you, you like this stuff, Jordan, huh? Um, <laughs> I really do. I don't know quite what it says about me. I had a fairly idyllic childhood as all these things go. Uh, maybe that's why. <laughs> but uh, but it's a, a real fun thing to, to wallow in. And I also do, um, as I say, I really enjoy the aesthetics of it a lot. Well, sure. Yeah. And it is, it's definitely like there was, I was looking at a shot of... Uh, uh, what was he doing? Kurt Russell was was drinking and dictating into a microphone, um, and it was like a beautiful, beautifully composed composition with a like a foreground, a middle ground, and a background. It was lit so well. You know the stuff that was in uh, the shot, including a bottle of J and B and a like a dented can of Coors, was was like perfect. The mise en scène expressed the character without you know having to explain anything in dialogue uh like i was like this is extraordinarily artful and that's uh you know i think that's uh that's some john carpenter stuff right right there right like that um the sort of the the artfulness of the way the the film is made is is down to to really good direction yeah while we're talking about that a particular scene um the shots are framed in such a way that like amps up the anxiety right there's the door frame yeah you see the door frame o- over his shoulder and you, yes you know you suspect that something is out there and then also you see the shot um from behind right as if there's someone or something uh behind him looking at him this is a thing um, that horror, yeah it's a thing that horror movies do they imply a point of view Right. And sometimes, uh, I, you know, I think it's probably stronger when it's not a red herring uh, a lot or when there's some other justification for the um, for the technique. But um, in the case of, you know, uh, in the case of like mysteries of whodunits, uh, they talk about in film, they talk about like a missing reverse shot. I think at Mildred Pierce, you see a guy get shot at the beginning of Mildred Pierce, but you don't see the reverse shot um i think until the end of the movie that uh you know and you figure out who who did the shot so there's a missing reverse shot you see a bad thing happen but no reverse to see who did the bad thing and here it's kind of like it's it's a it's a point of view shot without uh without necessarily knowing whose point of view it is now this is like uh the very first shot of the movie of of the the film proper not the it came from outer space um you know, kind of uh, prologue uh, is a shaky handheld shot 
of the you know antarctic um ice fields of fields of ice and i was like well why is this handheld uh what what is going on right and it's it's normally like oh someone is running there's like physical exertion or there's sort of physical disturbance that's making uh it's making the camera shake and the camera you know you're in the the looking from the point of view of someone on the uh looking from the point of view of someone on uh, who's like doing a thing uh, it's actually the dog it's the thing right and uh y- you know you get to you get to see the um you get to see the dog from the outside later but at the very beginning you are the thing Oh, that's so good. How, how do you not like this stuff? <laughs> I can appreciate it. I can appreciate it without it enjoying. I think actually like having had a, you know, having had a relatively happy childhood, uh, it probably equips you for enjoying it. Um, a lot more. I think if you grew up under physical threat or, or like emotional threat with, uh, you know, in a family with mental illness or addiction or, you know, trauma of various kinds, um, a little bit, you can start to feel like your life is a horror movie or like uh if if anxiety if like uh, an anxiety about your safety is part of your uh day-to-day experience it's not a fun place to visit recreationally even even much later in life when hopefully these things get resolved you you, you feel me yeah no absolutely i suppose it i've also talked to some people who um find the stuff cathartic and engaging they would tell you like precisely because oh, fair it's like a, a safe place to revisit those things. Yeah. But I could imagine it having to do with like the precise way that you uh, kind of built your psyche around those particular uh, yeah, early, neurochemicals, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, around early when, when you get yeah. that big adrenaline or or whatever hit, like does it take you down some really unpleasant routines and memories? Or even if you're not consciously memor- rem- remembering it, like an emotional memory or something like that. Or, or are you able to like process it more objectively? And it might be just like a roll of the dice, which way your psyche formed, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, the way the way it's funny. Like I've I've been, uh, you know, I was very interested in in psychoanalysis and read a lot of it in my twenties when I was in psychoanalysis. Now all the stuff, everything that you read, even popular stuff, is like the neurobiology of blah blah blah. The you know the brain and so and so, like brain brain and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And it's like. Uh, it's um a lot of what what gets dis- discussed is the idea of like sympathetic arousal and and parasympathetic discharge the idea that like in in situations of threat um a lot of stuff happens to your nervous system neurotransmitters th- you know things like this and um that like how you manage that how how your parasympathetic nervous system sort of I, I mean I'm not an expert someone will actually me in the comments because I'd you know love to hear more about this but that like the the when when you become safe um, your your nervous system gets to work repairing itself and this is kind of why uh, having having a, the stomach chomper show up in the safe scene um, is uh, <laughs> such a cheap shot because like our nervous system was was repairing itself at that you know at that moment um, 
uh, yeah, this is why chronic trauma can be uh, particularly bad um, relative to acute trauma when there is no opportunity to kind of like calm down and take a breath to like, you know, let your heart rate uh, relax, let your your uh, neurochemical balance kind of reassert itself for for your for the perception of threat to, you know, to go away and the perception of safety to to go. And so, like, it's you know, it's it's interesting because these things you know good movies like this i mean good movies of all all kinds like movies are emotional transportation and so they're always kind of manipulating you somehow but like good films of this type are engineered to like take you on a a, a pretty precisely calibrated journey um of uh uh neurological arousal and and neurological discharge um and in, in the same way that like comedy isn't funny if like it's two frames off you know, if the timing is not exactly perfect, then I, I imagine that the the scary thing I don't I don't have enough of a sample set to be able to to uh, you know make this reckon myself. But I imagine that the scary things aren't scary if the uh, you know the the construction of them isn't like finely attuned to manage the manage the arousal and discharge uh, of you know um, of nervous system arousal in in a really precise way. Not sure where. Not sure if there's a period to that sentence, but it is. Um, I, I can't appreciate the artfulness of it, in other words, without necessarily enjoying it myself. Oh, and I do think there is a, a weird way in which it connects really well with comedy. That, like, on on a completely like absolute value level, or you don't care about what kind of state you are creating in the audience, but you just want to get them into a state, the sort of the rhythmic quality of it, where you have this like set up, set up, set up, punchline, chomp, right, is, uh, <laughs> is very much the same. Um, there's, a, there's a really interesting piece of writing about that that I always forget the author's name, and I will throw it up in the show notes after I've, I've Googled around For a little sure. bit, it's also where they like, basically say that, uh, yeah. that, that, like, that slasher movies are silent film comedies you just like uh the thing that you throw in the person's face is not a pie anymore uh but other than that the technique is exactly the same (laughs) hey while we're talking about the aesthetics of this movie can we talk about the music um because i think it's some kind of crazy joke that at least on the tin um uh, at least also in the in uh, in the intro credits of this movie very prominently says music by ennio freaking morricone um yes the same yeah, the same Morricone, who's famous for all the spaghetti Western scores and sweeping orchestral music like, you know, the Cinema Paradiso, which I love so much that you still hear um, as filler music for the Oscars, um, is credited for music for this. But I, Jordan, I'm given to understand that he didn't really actually write a, a whole lot of music that wound up in it. And instead it was John Carpenter himself. Well, no, it's not quite that. It's that, So, like, John Carpenter famously writes a lot of his own scores. And, and it's like um, kind of, it's like, he's got a signature style, right? Kind of yeah. low-key, synth, um, and atmospheric. Yeah, yeah. Not and, and like... like not like a cinema parody so at all yeah yeah there's like there's one thing that he knows how to do he knows how to do it real well it works real well but it's also extremely limited and like you know uh, or, 
or something along those lines, right? So like there'll be some kind of synthy drone and then there'll be like another plane of activity and he gets really, really great kind of uh, textures and menacing, clearly electronic sounds out of some of those early generation synths and things like that. Uh, so the thing was, I think this is around like peak John Carpenter. It's at, at a point when his career was doing a lot of stuff and it was the most expensive movie he had ever made, I think. Uh, and in some ways, it was just that he was working so much, he didn't have time, but he didn't want to write the thing himself, which he had written most of his old films, and he didn't want to score the thing himself, and he had scored most of his own films. And uh, he was a fan of Ennio Morricone, and he went to Ennio Morricone for it. And Morricone was already like a, a storied film composer. You should note, if you go like digging around in Morricone's catalog, he has scored a lot of movies in a lot of different styles um and like this is not the first horror movie that he had done he he does a lot of work for dario ardento back in the 70s and uh he's certainly no uh no stranger to synthesizers but anyway he wrote a ton of music for this thing um and he was excited about the project he wrote like a lot of i think he wrote like a basically a synth score and an orchestral score and then a score that mixed the two together thinking that carpenter would probably pick these and apparently what happened was when they finally like sat down together carpenter basically like uh, looked at piece after piece sort of trying out like oh this could go here this could go here and basically like gradually cut everything that didn't sound like the kind of music that John Carpenter himself writes. And Morricone was like kind of grumpy about this later in life. He's like, I, I really put some work into this. I guess I could have just gone to a synthesizer and gone like, burr, burr. if you, you listen to the soundtrack album, there's a ton of fantastic music in it that is just nowhere to be found in the movie. Um, one more, one more funny story about this, but I have to let the cat out of the room because it's uh, scratching at the doorknob and it's probably not great radio. One second. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 Jordan, don't, don't do it. That cat could be the thing. I mean, right. I, I guess, uh, I guess a cat is too smart to, to let itself get assimilated into the thing. The only way the thing could have been, uh, more hideous than what it was, was if it had had a feline aspect, um, as well as a, a canine aspect, you know, and, and the spider aspect and yeah. the human aspect. Right. Um, and yeah, a weird alien kind of, kind of oh man i was real uh yeah real scared of the thing that's uh that's for sure was the cat the thing <laughs> yeah. no well i mean are you no the th- but are you just, the thing, just what i would have told you if i was in fact the thing <laughs> this is by the way another uh funny thing like if you go and read who goes there the novella the characters in the novella all have the same names and a lot of them kind of look the same but it's like i don't know if it was actually written in the 50s but they all have this kind of like i'm a 50s you know action hero kind of guy attitude so as soon as they realize what's going on rather than all sort of turning on each other and yelling at each other they kind of sit down and say like well naturally you know i thought of the test that could figure out whether we're the thing or not but then i could have done that just to throw you off my scent so obviously you can't just take my word for it and they're completely rationalistic uh and it's kind of funny to see like i think carpenter quite rightly is like this is not how people behave (laughs) they would they would turn Mm. on each other right away as soon as one of them like has a gun and has all the others like at his mercy he would say okay all of you up against the wall i know i'm not a thing so now we're doing it my way (laughs) just not not a thing that like the the 1950s characters would do super yeah super competent all right last what's what's the the final story about the uh about the score 
Oh, yeah. So that uh, if you want to hear some of that music, well, I mean, really, you should just go on YouTube and listen to the soundtrack or buy it, you know, not that Ennio Marcone terribly needs money. But you can also hear big chunks of it in The Hateful Eight, which, uh, you know, Morricone won an Oscar for that, I think. But it seems like a lot of the music in it, maybe nearly all, is just like stuff from his cutting room floor, things that were written for other movies that had never made it into other movies. And like he and Tarantino essentially like conned the Academy by taking all of this music that had already been written. And of course, Tarantino is famous for, for using library music rather than having a, a score originally written for the film. And apparently that's like, that's basically what he did there too. It was just all music that happened to have been written at various times in like the seventies and eighties by Ennio Morricone. And you can hear a bunch of unreleased thing cuts in there if you want to. <laughs> yeah. I Jordan, mean, have, have, you know. have you seen the hateful eight? Does it have a similar thing going on where like they all distrust each other and the like paranoia and stuck in a place together yeah and also like the wintry landscape so there there are a couple of there are a couple of places where you'll hear like a particular string or synthesizer texture and you're like well that's clearly the thing and then you're like oh i see what they're doing (laughs) It, it doesn't go quite as like all the way down the line but uh there is this kind of Wait, are you part of part of this gang of cowboys that we're fighting? Are you part of this gang of cowboys? Could I be part of this gang of cowboys? Which feels thingy. <laughs> What's that? Isn't it uh, in Help the the Beatles reviewers? It's a thingy, a fiendish thingy. That that. <laughs> Yeah. It's part of the same cinematic universe. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so all so four of the Beatles to, are things. Uh, I did want to ask, we, we talked about, I uh, I am on record as being like in the tank for horror movies. I'll, I'll watch even a bad horror movie if you give me half an excuse. Uh, and Matt, you said that you do not like scary things that scare you. Yes. Mark, what's your relationship to horror movies? I can be convinced to watch one if it's considered to be notable, like uh, The Thing or Alien. Alien belongs to the same conversation of like sci-fi horror movies that have ideas and also like gore and, and scares and things like that. Um, I do also really enjoy the horror comedy, um, particularly like the Evil Dead movies and Army of Darkness, um, which uh, had their tongues planted firmly in cheek. Uh, which in turn is, I guess, inside of a rotting corpse. Um, so I, I found room for it, but I don't really actively go seek it out. Um, oh, but with that, perhaps a notable exception of Jordan Peele's Us, which, damn, that movie is, is, a, is, a, is a friggin' masterpiece. And Matt, I don't know if you ever got around to seeing that, but holy crap. I, didn't, I don't like scary things that scare me. But yeah, with you, like the world's, the world's End is a sort of horror-esque. I mean, it's a Body Snatchers type of movie, right? Um, yeah, in that, in the, I mean, the Cornetto trilogy, actually, a lot of the, the Cornetto trilogy, um, you know, seems like it... it goes in that goes in that direction and like i you know i don't mind i don't mind those i also jordan for what it's worth like i i uh again i appreciated but did not super enjoy the the literal sensation of watching like dunkirk you know or we talked about saving private ryan a couple weeks ago and that was like that was one where i had to like turn it off you know, because there wasn't even this kind of veneer of fantasy to keep the the uh, the man's inhumanity to man at bay, you know, and it was just it, the or the 
I don't know, this sort of unrelenting uh, stressfulness um, of it. I, I felt very brave, uh, much braver in many ways than a soldier fighting in an actual war uh, to sit on my couch and, and watch that film. <laughs> Thank you for your service, Matt. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. Um. So you know, it's it's uh, it's maybe it's maybe stress hormones that that I don't like, um, rather than you know, and I'll go watch an action movie that has has uh, I don't know scary stuff in it or or whatever. Um, but you know, I don't know. It's not. Uh, uh, it, I guess slasher things or ghost things really are the thing are, are the things that that get me. Or, or again, like you know, Wehrmacht things. Yeah, yeah, yeah hmm. the, the whole. Uh, I think it's something about man's inhumanity to man, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just so. <laughs> Actually, another. <laughs> there's another movie with some like scary bits in it that uh, that I think is a masterpiece, and I I would watch. I mean, like I said I I watched the first half of uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket really anytime um, whenever it comes on TV, which it never does. Or uh, the the second half, I gotta gotta be sort of mentally prepared for the more the more heart of darknessy half of of full metal jacket i gotta gotta you know gear up for i guess um well we're uh we're uh, coming to the end of our time so so uh let's uh let's just leave everyone with some uh some some final thoughts about the thing i mean i think i think you better watch out the oh, i guess i already made the the um the lauren hill joke um is there an aspect of datedness, I guess, uh, with with, uh, with this movie, Jordan, or is, is it like our horror movies better now, or is this the kind of like oft imitated, never duplicated, uh, kind of seminal one for you? Man, that's a tough question. I feel like this movie is so perfectly itself. Uh, they're never like they, they did do a reboot slash prequel. I guess it's the story of the Norwegian encampment yeah. uh, a few years back. And I didn't even, I didn't even make myself go see it because I was just like, it's not going to be, it's not going to be this, you know? Um, and I don't really, I don't think that horror movies today are doing this anymore. I don't think that they could, but I also think that horror movies today are in a really incredible place. There's such wonderful work being done in the genre. Um, uh, maybe people standing on the shoulders of Carpenter. I don't want to see people try to do the thing. Like yeah. when I want to see this, I just want to go see this again. Um, I would like to be bonked on the head just hard enough that I forget about the belly chomp scene so that that can come as a total surprise for me. And other than that, I just want to see this. So yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a work of art, which means that it is purely itself and really can't be even compared to anything else. Oh, fair enough. All right. Well, uh, let's leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. And, uh, Mark and Jordan, thank you for podcasting and doing this thing about the thing uh, in in such a thingy way. Um, if you'd like to join in on the conversation about the thing, head over to the show notes. Go to overthinkingit.com. Uh, find this episode there on the homepage. Click show notes and you'll find a place where you can add some comments uh, and add your thing about the thing. God, that joke is the gift that keeps on giving. Give thing. <laughs> we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. 
it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. You're very generous laughing at my jokes, Drew. But seriously, if you're an alien, you have to tell me.